You know, in some cases, timing is everything. I mean, if you think about things that happen in the nick of time or at the last minute or, or you just happen to show up at the right time when certain events were happening and you didn't even know they were going to happen, but you just happened to be there at the right time, uh, timing is really important. Uh, sometimes time seems to pass very quickly. Sometimes time seems to pass very slowly. When you're five years old, the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas can't move quickly enough. It just seems to take forever for Christmas to arrive. And then when you get to my age, you don't even think in terms of weeks or months anymore. You just think in terms of seasons and years, and, and it's just flying by so quickly. It doesn't seem like you can get a handle on it. But what about when you're in pain? Does time ever move more slowly than when you are in pain? Or when you're writhing under injustice, or you're angry, or perhaps worst of all, enslaved and oppressed, can time conceivably move any more slowly than that? I think to understand the story of Miriam and Moses, you really have to take a careful look at time. So how old is Miriam when Moses gets placed in the basket in the Nile? How old do you think Miriam is? I mean, I'm thinking she has to at least be five years old, right? I mean, she's not gonna do what she did She's not going to hide and watch her baby brother in the reeds and then when the princess comes to retrieve the basket, have the courage to run out there and offer help. And I think she's got to be at least five. She could be 12 for all I know. I don't know how old Miriam is. The Bible doesn't tell us how old Miriam is. She could easily be an older teenager given her reaction and the reaction of the princess to her. So let's do some time calculations. Moses goes to the palace to be raised. And then after he's raised, we have this part of the story where he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of the Israelites and he kills him and he has to, to run away. This is Exodus chapter two. And we're told that happens when Moses is about 40 years old. If Moses is about 40 years old when this happened, Miriam's older than 40 at that time. That makes sense. And so Moses heads off to the wilderness. He marries Zipporah, uh, is a shepherd out there. And I wonder how Miriam feels when Moses ghosts them and heads to the wilderness. What? What's she thinking? She's 40-something, right? Exodus 2.23 describes the period of time that Moses is in the wilderness as a long period. Scholars think the length of time is about 40 years in the wilderness. So, so Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's household learning the ways of Pharaoh and then 40 years in the wilderness, unlearning the ways of Pharaoh. 
And what has Miriam been doing? That's 80-something years now, right? What's she been doing? She's been living in slavery, abused, mistreated, along with her nation. Think about it. How long has Miriam and her family endured mistreatment? At least 80 years. That's a long time. And I'm asking myself the question as I read this story, who perseveres in prayer? Who is able to continue to keep faith that God will act for 80 years? Who among us has that kind of resilience and faith and determination to trust God for the answer for 80 years? And I'm guessing that when anyone asks us if we have the faith to persevere for 80 years, we're all starting to stare down at our shoelaces and hope that no one's looking at us. Because 80 years is a long time. Perhaps you understand Moses' reluctance to go back to Egypt when you remember that when um, the things that I'm about to read from Scripture happen, he's 80 years old. I mean, he's 80. Who wants to make a trip like this at this point? Move the whole family with you? And how are we going to get there? Commuter rail? Aren't you just settled down at 80? And after all, who's back in Egypt anyway? I mean, anybody he knows still alive? He's, he's on the wanted posters in the post office, right? Is he still a fugitive there? Have they forgotten about him after 40 years? But God has done something, we're going to read, to convince Moses it is time to go back. This is Exodus 3. I'll read a few verses of the story. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Sensible. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
And now the cry of the Israelis has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you will say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You've heard the story. Moses doesn't want to go back to Egypt, so God convinces him. It's a little surprising to me that this conversation even occurs. I always thought that conversations with God went, God says jump, and we say how high. I mean, I, I assumed that's how conversations with God go. But God says some things to Moses, and Moses is like, hey, you know, I don't think so. Which seems a little presumptuous to me. But this is how the story goes. This is what we're told. Moses seems to argue. They will want to know who sent me. God replies, I am sent you, the God of the patriarchs. Moses said, but they won't listen to me. God says, I will make even the Egyptians happy to see the people leave. Moses says, what if they say God didn't really appear to me? Well, then God says, throw down your staff and it becomes a snake. And you can almost hear Moses starting to say more. And then he says, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses takes his hand, he puts it inside his cloak, he pulls it out, and it's all old and diseased with leprosy. And I'm sure he went, <gasps> because leprosy was a dread disease. God says, put it back, and he puts his hand back, and he pulls it out, it's perfectly normal. And I'm sure Moses is about to open his mouth and say something else, and and God says, now take some water out of the Nile and pour it on the ground. And he takes some water out of the Nile, pours it on the ground, it turns to blood at his feet. Really cool tricks, right? Staff to a snake. What are miracles for? They're, they're signs to point people to God to demonstrate that God is present, that he is at hand, that he is sovereign even over all of creation because this is his creation. And yet Moses is not finished complaining. He's still making excuses. His next line is this. Well, I, I know you want me to go and lead the people out of Egypt, but I don't speak so well. We have a stuttering Moses in front of us. And um, the Lord says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? This is verse 11. Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help 
you speak and will teach you what to say. And about this time, as I'm listening to Moses complain and to try to make excuses for himself and, and for him trying to find some way to get out of doing what God wants him to do, I'm starting to ask myself the question, maybe I understand why it takes God 80 years to answer some of our prayers. I mean, if it's his plan to work through his people, his people have to want to work with him. And I wonder how often are we like Moses, resisting the plan of God while those around us suffer for our lack of obedience and our lack of faith? It's a frightening question, isn't it? Are there people around us who are suffering because we just can't figure out a way to answer God with a yes? Still, Moses isn't convinced. Even with this astounding logic of God, which says, you can't speak too well, well, I created your mouth, so I'm surely going to be able to help you speak, right? Even with that amazing logic, Moses back with this answer, because there's no more logical reasons not to go at this point. So he finally just says, this is verse 13, but Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> I mean, that is one way of writing this, right? Another way is like, I don't want to. I mean, every four-year-old is able to say that, right? I, I just don't want to. I don't want to do this. Please send someone else. And so, so God relents, which is amazing and frightening to me. And he says, okay, I'll send Aaron with you. He'll speak, but you do the signs. Moses is not getting off the hook. He is now stuck. So what, what should Moses know about himself at this point in the story? I mean, people that he was willing to kill for 40 years ago are now not as important as his comfort. I, mean, I think you can see that. Moses ought to know that about himself after this interaction. He also doesn't know, in fairness, if any of his family members are living or not. All he really has is the command of God to go. God hasn't made promises to him about his family, but that's hanging out there. The one thing we know that he knows for sure is that he is being sent by God and that God will go with him. And I would suggest that for you and I, as for Moses, that ought to be enough, right? To know that you're sent by God and that God will go with us, I would think that would be enough for us. So Moses has to act. Exodus 4.18 reads, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are alive. Now, I'm thinking about that excuse, right? Because that's not why he's going back. That was the convenient excuse he came up with for his father-in-law. The reason he's going back is because God is sending him to liberate the people of Israel. That's the headline. But he's still not ready to own that. 
Maybe he's hedging his bets. Maybe he's not sure that God can deliver. I don't know. But the idea of going back and seeing if any of my relatives are alive, that will fly with my father-in-law. We'll give him that much. And so Moses, the wife and the kids, they load up the minivan. They head to Egypt. If only it had been that easy. And I wonder, what does Moses expect to find? He's been told there's a new king. So maybe he's not a fugitive. He knows if he finds any family, they're going to be old because Miriam is how old at this point? 80 plus, right? And he doesn't know what Miriam thinks about him, right? I mean, you would think that at some measure, um, Moses is the younger brother who was raised in privilege, who ought to be able to do something to extend that privilege to his family, including Miriam. And that maybe through Moses and all the extra blessings, that education that he had received at Pharaoh's hand, that could have transferred to something great for the people of Israel, and if not for the whole nation, at least for Miriam and her family, right? But he's been absent without leave for 40 years. And I would think he's wondering what kind of reception he might expect when he gets back into town. Should Moses expect bitterness from his family? I wonder about us when the answer to our prayer is long in coming. How do we do with patience in prayer? How long do we wait for God's deliverance before we come up with our own solution? What do we do? How do we occupy ourselves in the meantime waiting for God's deliverance? When we see the deliverance of God approaching, do we say, what took you so long? And have you ever considered the idea that perhaps you are a part of God's deliverance plan and that people are waiting for you to get in the minivan and head to Egypt? At this point of the story, the stage is now set for the showdown that will bring deliverance to Israel. This is chapter 4, verse 29. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Israel is finally being reconnected and joined together because they believe that at last God has heard their cries. Israel had lost hope. Israel now believes. And that in itself is no small miracle. We don't get the report of what Miriam had to say to Moses when he got back. We only get the general report, which is the people believed. There's no report of what took you so long. All we get is the people believed. God had heard and he was about to do something. You know, there are people all around us who are wondering if God hears them. There are people all around us who are wondering if God cares about them. There are people all over town who are experiencing pain, 
who are moving in slow time because of their circumstances, who need other people to reach out to them and offer compassion and caring. Those people are around us everywhere. Does God care? Does he hear? Is there anyone to express the compassion of Christ? I'm not sure you'll get the chance to see a burning bush. I'm not sure what kind of communication God will use to get your attention. But I know that the Holy Spirit has been given to us for just times like this. So that when God wants to send you and me to express his compassion, to assure people that he has heard them, he is able to speak his word to us to enable us to go, to step out, to make a difference, to go to where the pain is. This is what John 14, 26 says. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It is this spirit that calls to us, who sends us, who points to the needs around us and shouts out, do something about this. Make a difference. Stand for what is just. Do what is right. Live as the people of God. Respond to the suffering that is around you. In the same way that God sent Moses, God is sending you, he is sending me. That's why we have events like the block party, by the way, right? You're never gonna know about the needs around you unless at some point you rub elbows with the people who have those needs. And if Americans are good at anything, it's that they are good at isolating in their own homes. And we've had a couple of years of practice at it. Friends, we've got to listen. We've got to pay attention. And at some level, I'm sort of convinced that if we see a burning bush around, it's because it's the only way God can get our attention. He's been speaking all along by his spirit. And if we will listen, we will be sent. And we will be used of God to let folks all around know that he hears, that he cares, that he is anxious to respond. But will we listen? Or will we begin to recite our list of excuses? Well, they won't listen to me. How will they know you really sent me? And I don't speak very well. And please send somebody else. Surely we could do better than Moses, right? At least in this instance. Because we have what he didn't have. The Holy Spirit. Who continues to draw us and to call us and ascend us. Pray with me while the worship team comes to lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father,
We know you've been in the business of sending your people for many, many, many years. And many of us have had the experience of being sent in particular times and in particular ways to make a difference in the lives of people around us. So we know that you still do the very same thing. And it is our prayer this morning, Lord, that if you are speaking to us and sending us that we will hear your voice, we will perceive what you are saying, and we will be quick to follow all that you call us to do because we know that it is your heart's desire to transform this world around us. We know that you want to bring your kingdom. We know that you want to rescue people. And Lord, we volunteer to be a part of that rescue operation today. Would you send us? I'm going to ask you to do something as we sing this song. I want to invite you in a moment to stand that if at any point you would like to witness the fact that these words, I will follow, apply to you, that you're willing to go, then sometime during this song, for at least a moment, raise your hand and give testimony to the fact that you will, in fact, obey the voice of God as you understand it. Just once during the song, raise your hand and say, I will follow. Would you stand with me while we sing? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. If this life I 
you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Who you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. In this life, I lose. I will follow you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Who you love, I love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. Yeah, I will follow you. Yeah, I will follow you. Many of you are already following. Many of you are listening to the voice of God, stepping out and doing exactly the things he's calling to, calling to you to do. And for that, I give God praise and thanks. We just, all the rest of us, need to join them. Listen for the voice of God. Give up the excuses. Step forward and be the hands and feet of Christ in our neighborhood. And now may the Holy Spirit so enable and energize you that you have full confidence in his ability to not only go with you, but provide everything you need to do his will. For his glory, now and forever. Amen.